Well, after a few month hiatus, we are jumping back into the seven letters to the seven churches from the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So please open up your copy of God's Word to Revelation 2. We'll be in verses 12 through 17. And as you're turning there, each fall, I, uh, I get an email from my old ball coach inviting me to come back to Covenant College and to play in our alumni baseball game. And there's always that uh, little part of me that wonders, along with that great philosopher, Toby Keith, perhaps I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. That little part of me that wonders if I've still got it. But providentially, I'll sneeze, cough, or hiccup too aggressively and throw my back out. So any delusions of grandeur are quickly snuffed out. If I'm honest, these days, when it comes to baseball, it's far easier for me to rest on my laurels, to fondly remember the glory days, than it would be for me to strap on the cleats to grab a bat and jump into the batter's box. To be honest, I would rather be coddled with the exciting tales of exploits past rather than confronted with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, which is why my yearly response to my old ball coach is thanks, but no thanks. Unfortunately, the life of faith doesn't afford that kind of luxury. We step up to the proverbial plate each and every day. Yet there exists within all of us a temptation to rest upon our laurels, to gaze with doe eyes upon the victories of the former days, the glory days of years and of faith gone by. For a moment, let us consider our own carriage lane. For 30 plus years, we've enjoyed a rich and storied history. We've seen the Lord's faithfulness. We've seen unbelievers become believers. We've seen children raised up in the care and admonition of the Lord. We've seen young believers mature in wisdom and in faith. We've raised up and sent out missionaries, pastors, elders, deacons, faithful husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers, men and women of the faith. And each of those are reasons to rejoice in the Lord, to recount to him the wonders that he has performed. But they aren't laurels for us to rest in. Yet so often as we grow tired and weary, our laurels, our past faithfulness, make for a rather appealing resting place. Yet here in our passage, Jesus shockingly, yet graciously, reveals the precarious and perilous nature of that temptation. Because in resting in our laurels, there arises an even graver temptation, a temptation towards spiritual vanity or entitlement, which often makes our hearts resistance to hearing necessary words of correction and confrontation A spiritual vanity that perhaps make us more desirous of being coddled in our faith rather than confronted 
and challenged. Yet what a friend, what a savior we have in Jesus. One who will tell us the truth. Who possesses the relational courage to tell us exactly what we need to hear. So from our passage tonight, I want us to see three things. Jesus' approach, the church's peril, and finally, an astonishing hope. Or more simply, the approach, the peril, and finally, the hope. So hear now the word of the Lord from Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, the sermon title was, Unless You Repent. And tonight, I guess the sermon title could be, Therefore Repents. Well, our first point this evening is Jesus' approach. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Revelation 1 gives us a glorious vision of the risen and ascended Christ. And included in each of the letters to the seven churches are pertinent aspects of that vision of Jesus. Aspects that were specific to and especially for each church. And thus far, Jesus, as he approached the church in Ephesus, he approached them as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Essentially what Jesus is saying there is that Jesus is the head of the church, that he's the boss, but that he also walks among them. He draws near to them. He tends and he cares for them. And to the church of Smyrna, a church living under, the, under heavy persecution, Jesus reveals the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Which is to say that despite what appearances may suggest that Jesus, their Savior, is sovereign over and above all worldly powers and authorities. And that though they may die for their faith, yet shall they live with Jesus, the conqueror of the grave. Well, as Jesus rings the doorbell of the church of Pergamum, what is it? that they discover as they open the door. And I'm not sure what they were expecting, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't what they saw. Because what they saw was Jesus standing there with a sharp sword in his hand ready for war. While Jesus came to comfort 
and to encourage the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna. That's not exactly his aim here for the church in Pergamum. Think about it for a moment. If someone were to show up on your front stoop with a sword in their hand, that would probably mess with the nerves a bit. We would find, all find that a bit unsettling, even if you knew who it was. So it is here. It's meant to be unsettling. It's meant to be distressing because whatever Jesus is here to do, he means business. So with a sword in his hand, the first thing he tells the church in Pergamum is this. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know the difficulties and the struggles that you face. For you live where Satan's throne is. Or later in verse 13, where Satan dwells. Now I don't think John's intention here is to say that Satan's P.O. box is in in Pergamum. But more, this is a reference to the spiritual realities and the difficulties that the church faced. To be sure, Pergamum was known for being the first major city in Asia Minor to practice emperor worship. They also had a prominent statue of a bronze serpent built by the cult of Asclepius, the god of healing. And there was also in the hills surrounding the city a myriad of temples, including a renowned temple in the worship of Zeus. This all likely served as reasons for and why Jesus declared Pergamum to be essentially Satanville, Satanopolis, or Satan City. Which brings a variety of images to mind as to what living in Pergamum would have been like. Yet by all accounts, Pergamum was, would have been a nice place to live. It was a city that enjoyed affluence and influence of all kinds and sorts. It was a city that, that was full of architectural beauty. And as a capital city in the re- region, it would have been a melting pot of different religions and cultures. Perhaps like our own Peachtree City, Pergamum would have been numbered among the best places to live in Asia Minor. Yet despite its prominence and prestige, Jesus refers to it as Satanville, acknowledging the difficulties and the struggles that the church was facing. And in light of those struggles, Jesus commends them. Now despite living where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. As we said, Pergamon was a church that possessed a rich history of faithfulness under fire and amidst persecution. And Jesus acknowledges that reality. This was a church that had been tried and had remained true to the faith. They had held fast to Jesus despite persecution, despite being marginalized, and despite having to watch as their beloved son, brother, and friend in Christ, Antipas, was martyred for his faith. Revelation often speaks of a dragon, of an evil one, Satan. And the dragon had inflicted many wounds upon the church in Pergamum. And yet they had remained faithful. Yet the question remains, why does Jesus show up on their doorstep with a drawn sword? Hadn't they been through enough? I mean, whatever it is, whatever their shortfall is, shouldn't Jesus just let them off the hook? Shouldn't he just let a few things slide 
And I think there is a necessary point of application here. Growing up, I, I rode my bike to and from school. And there were multiple routes I could take home. And one in particular, a little, with a little more effort on the front end, I could literally coast the last like mile and a half all the way home without ever having to pedal. Now, I can't speak for you, but I like to work hard, and then I like to coast. But the problem is that it's a dangerous thing to coast where Satan dwells. Because you can't lackadaisically coast your way through a minefield in a war zone. We have to be vigilant. We have to be careful and watchful. For assumption and presumption can place us in precarious positions. And though it can be rather be a rather tempting prospectus to rest upon our laurels, yet as our passage reveals, it is a perilous one. True rest comes not through our own laurels, our own past successes and faithfulness. No, our rest must be in Christ and in him alone in his finished work on our behalf. Therefore, our restful gaze must not be within, to ourselves, to our own past accomplishments, but our eyes must be ever fixed upon Jesus, who himself is our rest. For it is only in him that we can endeavor and endure onwards and upwards in faith. Which is why Jesus jarringly shows up wielding a sword that they and that we might be shocked into paying better attention, paying closer attention to divert our eyes from the cares and the concerns of this world and to turn our eyes to Jesus. He might capture our attention and our devotion once again. So what danger is the church in Pergamum facing? And this takes us to point Number two, an alarming danger. And we see it in verses 14 and 15. And it's really a twofold kind of problem. The primary problem was a lack of leadership. Or as Jesus puts it, that they have some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam and later the Nicolaitans. This was a church with false teachers in its midst. False teachers that the leadership is at best unaware of or had overlooked or at worst, the the leadership is platforming and encouraging these false teachers. False teaching that is leading the people astray. It's leading them into idolatry and the sexual immorality of the day. Yet rather than their leaders, it's Jesus who alerts them to this problem and warns them that either they go to war with these false teachers and followers, or he will. Suffice to say, hard conversations had been needing to happen. There was sin in the camp, yet for any number of reasons. That can had been kicked down the proverbial road time and time and time again. And to be fair... Theological error isn't always easy to sort through. It's not like these false teachers were some pantomime villain sitting up in the balcony of the church. Just clearly up to no good. 
or nor were they barging into the worship service teaching blatantly ridiculous things. No, they were probably nice guys with immense gifts and charismatic personalities, and they likely enjoyed a wealth of history and connection within that community. Yet with their teaching, they were leading people astray. And the shepherds, the elders, the pastors were allowing the wolves to just have their pick of the litter or their run of the herd, which prompted Jesus to show up at their doorstep with a sword because it was time to get busy. Because theology is not just for books, but for life. And the truth is, bad theology kills. So what exactly is this false teaching, this bad theology, that's this teaching of Balaam? Well, if you remember from the book of Numbers, everyone's favorite book, Balaam was a pagan prophet. And Balaam had been paid by the king of Moab, Balak, to curse the people of Israel. The only problem is that whenever he would try to curse them, he would instead bless them. And after he had tried that song and dance a couple of times, he changed his tactics. And he brought in the Moabite women to woo and to entice the hearts of Israel towards idolatry and sexual immorality. Revelation speaks of an adversarial dragon and also of a harlot. And while the church in Pergamum had endured the dragon's wounds, they are now slowly but surely succumbing to the harlot's wounds. Rather than a growing love for the, lo- for the Lord, what the false teachers were encouraging in that congregation was a growing tolerance and fascination with the sins of idolatry and sexual immorality. They were convincing them that perhaps these sins weren't quite as sinful as they had previously been led to believe. That they could actively and intently indulge themselves with these sins without stain, without repercussion or ramification. That they could compromise with the whims and the wants of their culture without fear, without hesitation, without concern, effect, or impact upon their faith. Particularly at issue in the church in Pergamum was the issues of food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. And many commentators believe the real issue here is not that they were buying food sacrificed to idols. Paul addresses this issue in his letters to the Corinthians. But the real issue, the heart of the matter, was that Christians could be found participating in worship on Sundays, but they could also be found attending and participating and joining in these pagan feasts. Feasts that suffice to say were filled with all kinds of debauchery, wickedness, idolatry, and sin. You see, rather than encouraging them to do business with sin, these false teachers were instead inviting them to play games with it, to frolic about in the minefield of their own destruction, playing patty cake with sin rather than putting it to death. Pergamum was a church that was on the verge of losing its saltiness. It was losing its distinctiveness and was becoming just like the world that surrounded it. 
because they weren't willing to go to war with their sin. So I'll ask you what I've been asking myself all week. Could the same be said of us? Idolatry and sexual immorality were eating this church alive, captivating their affection, stirring their desires, and compromising their witness and ministerial effectiveness in the city of Pergamum. And beloved, what about you and what about me? For the similarities between their day and ours far outweigh the differences. We exist in a culture that doggedly devotes itself to the pursuits of money, success, power, security, popularity, sex, and entertainment. Seeking out those things in order to find substance and significance in this life. And as far as sexual immorality, the truth is from its inception, the church has always been considered culturally prudish and backwards in its sexual ethic. For the scriptures teach that sex is only to be enjoyed within the covenantal relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. Yet that seems so foreign, so strange, so peculiar, even flabbergasting or even unwise to so many in our world. To live distinctly is necessarily to live in contrast to the world that surrounds us. And that contrast invites and often necessitates conflict. And conflict isn't necessarily or particularly pleasant. And too often we would rather be coddled in our sin than confronted and challenged over it. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why the church of today values relevance far more than distinctiveness. Yet light is necessarily distinct from darkness. Relatability is at times a far more precious jewel to the American church than holiness. Yet I wonder and I fear that in our efforts to engage with the culture, to be accommodating to the world that surrounds us, that despite even our best intentions, our earnest intentions, we are instead being far more accommodated by the culture. That rather than shaping the world, The world is shaping us. Perhaps that's why concerns of money, fame, power, and influence are so important in the American church. Not because of their value to God, but because it's exactly what our culture finds so valuable. When we really peel back the onion of our hearts, what values are revealed? And are they derived from scripture or have they perhaps sprouted up from someplace else? This letter to the church in Pergamum forces us to ask some really disconcerting and unsettling questions. To pull back the curtain of the murky mess of our lives. Yet as Jesus exposes an alarming peril, he does so to reveal our astonishing hope. Which brings us to our third point, an astonishing hope. Because hope does, in fact, remain. Brothers and sisters, the hope is the hope of repentance. So in verse 16, Jesus calls them, therefore repent in light of these hard and uncomfortable truths. In light of these difficulties and struggles, the right and proper response is not to try harder. It's not to self-justify present failures with past victories. 
It's not to cover ourselves up with the fig leaves of our own morality. No, the proper response to hearing such hard things is to repent, to turn our soul's gaze yet again to the Lord of glory and the God of grace. For the way we begin the Christian life is also the way we continue in it. By looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, by looking to his finished work, the work that Christ has accomplished through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, where he has achieved our redemption. For by his wounds we are healed. For on the cross he took our sin and our shame and he gave to us his righteousness and sinless perfection, achieving for us once and for all time victory over sin and over death. Yet the time to repent is now. It's now. It's not something to lollygag with or meander our bout with. It's not something we should procrastinate. For Jesus tells them, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the million dollar question is this Are we listening? Will we hear and heed our Savior's call to repentance? His call to set the gaze of our souls upon him. And having heard and heeded this call, will we courageously invite others to do just the same? To turn their eyes upon Jesus. And you know, Jesus could have just left it there with that question. But he doesn't. He reminds them of the blessing. Albeit a bit cryptically, but there are hidden benefits. There are, as they say, incentives to hearing and heeding his words. There's this hidden manna, a reference to the Exodus, where the Lord faithfully provided bread each and every morning for his people, giving them the nourishment that they needed to navigate their way through life in the wilderness. And in John 6, when Jesus declared that he himself is the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the hair on the back of our neck should stand up. Because what he is saying is this, that he is the nourishment, he is the sustenance that we so desperately need to navigate our way through this pilgrim run. Jesus is the bread of heaven. He is the hidden manna. He is the nourishment and the sustenance of your soul, of which the world knows nothing. For he is the underlying and the the undergirding power that enables us to walk by faith, step by step and day by day. Jesus also promises that he will give him a white stone with a new name, written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. White and black stones had multiple uses in the ancient world. And as commentators do, they argue back and forth about what use is in view here. Juries would designate guilt or innocence by casting white or black stones. But white stones also served as invitations to great banquets and feasts. And what was causing a ruckus in Pergamum? Banquets and feasts. So in my opinion, this is a little closer to the mark. Because that issue in the church in Pergamum were these feasts and banquets that were so full of sin and debauchery. 
Yet what also took place at these, at these uh, feasts and banquets were, were business deals. It's where business got done. It's where deals came together and agreements were finalized. So the reality was that probably sitting in the pockets of some there in the original audience was a little white stone or two. Little invitations to the next banquet or feast. Perhaps even as they sat there in worship that day, they were anticipating, excited about that next feast or banquet. Yet what Jesus is promising them here is that to the one who repents, the one who turns from sin and sets their hope upon Jesus, that with him and in him, there is a far greater feast to be had. An invitation to a far better feast. A feast not full of sin and debauchery, but one full of grace and glory. And notice it's not just a blanket invitation either. But it's personalized one. A personalized invitation to the greatest banquet and feast that the universe will ever see. The great wedding feast of the Lamb. So why would they settle for the lesser feast of this world? When a greater invitation to a greater feast could be had in Christ. A feast where we will taste and see that the Lord is good. So I'll ask pointedly. Have you tasted of that goodness this evening? Have you feasted your soul upon the glories of the gospel? Has the aroma of grace permeated the depths of your soul? Does your soul salivate for the bread of heaven? Because the Savior of the world invites you to come, to taste and see that he is good, that he is the bread of heaven. And that he will feed you until you want no more. And if you have tasted and seen his goodness, yet with longing you await our glorious feast, tonight our Savior grants us a foretaste, a little nibble of the glory and the wonder that is to come as he invites us to this table that's been set before us this evening. A table where we Remember that his body was broken and that his blood poured out for us as we eat of the bread and drink of the fruit of the vine. So let me pray for us as we go to the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you and we praise you even for hard words. Father, that you are a savior who is willing to tell us the truth. But yet as you confront us, you comfort us with the realities and the promises of your grace. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus and how in him we have found our true rest. And God, we pray all these things now in your son's name. Amen.